think it would be an understatement to say uh, it's been an interesting week in the life of our nation, has it not? Um, this morning, uh, interestingly enough, we kick off a new series called Fearless. Our whole desire through this series is to give God the opportunity to position ourselves, position ourselves before Him so that He can lead us more toward faith-based living than fear-based living. Uh, part of my concern I shared with you guys last week, coming out of 2020 in terms of uh, looking back and reflecting on both what I had written and what I'd felt and what I had received from friends and heard in the, just the, the myriad of discussions throughout uh, the pandemic, the political unrest and strife that we'd seen in our nation, um, was this deep awareness of how so many of our decisions were being uh, made and driven and fueled ultimately by fear not by faith. We were responding to people, really reacting to people, uh, instead of responding um, due to fear. We were making decisions and not making decisions out of fear. Uh, we were being wound up by, by people and personalities um, and organizations and industries in our nation that exist solely to produce fear in you and then give you a lane uh, to drive in with that fear. And so we want to talk over the next few weeks, four weeks, about how it is that we move from life-based decisions and thoughts and emotions that are driven by fear back into the lane where we are vibrantly being the people of faith that God's called us to be and making decisions out of that. I'm not going to say much or talk to you much um, about what we saw this week, this morning, because honestly, I'd rather talk to you about God than I would politics. I will say a little bit more about it next week, but I, I, I will say this. I, watching it both as an American that loves this country uh, and that is always happy to return home uh, when I've been abroad and as a, a, a child of the 80s that grew up where everything was clear, who was good and who was bad and who was going to win and who wasn't, um, I was, like many of you, most of you, probably all of you, unsettled uh, and dismayed uh, by what I saw, um, by what was behind it, by reactions to it all over the place. Uh, had many uh, text conversations and conversations with friends uh, who were uh, very much on, on different sides of understanding what was going on and trying to listen and filter all that through. And I will tell you, my greatest concern as a follower of Jesus, and certainly as a pastor, um, was watching some of the images where Jesus' names being pulled in and trying to be a utilized, utilized or equated to or with an individual or a political agenda or a political party or a movement. And I just have to say, with as much clarity as I can this morning, Jesus will not be used. He will not be used by us as a political pawn. He will not be co-opted by any party, by any philosophy, by any leader, by any political agenda, and thrown on top of what we already intend to do and believe and think. And I think my, my great concern and the thing that causes me to really wrestle uh, is the fact that uh, there are great swaths of people who profess faith in Jesus filling evangelical churches across our country who don't know the difference. They don't know the difference in the gospel and whatever their political philosophy is. And it's dangerous. And I think it's, it's pulled back a veil on a lot of souls. 
and is causing many genuine followers of Jesus, when we look at what Jesus said about the fruit that would characterize his true disciples, to wonder what portion of people sitting in our churches week in and week out are actually born-again followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of his, who, who take their cues from him, who filter what we see and what we believe through the lens of Jesus. I'll tell you the question you and I always need to be asking is not whether Jesus is on our side in any given thing, but whether we are on Jesus' side. Whether we are people of the gospel, people of justice, people of love, people of hope. I would give you this challenge before we jump into um, the message this morning. And we did it the week after, if I remember right, the week after um, election. I would challenge you this week. And I got some, uh, some clarifying questions from some of you the last time we did this. Um, so I'm going to try to be clear here. But I would challenge you this week, beginning with today, to just pause this week. Just this week, until we gather again next week, from social media and from news. Just decide, I'm going to fast this week. From Facebook, from Instagram, from Twitter, from whatever else you're on. And from watching the news and listening to the news, and maybe in place of that, pray. I'm not saying it's an either or, but I am saying you and I do far more with our prayer than we do with our posts. And when you feel that urge, like, man, I want to jump on and see what's happening, go to God in prayer. Spend this week as God's representatives in this particular nation at this time, just praying for your neighbors, praying for our leaders, praying for our country. And then let's come back together next week. I will tell you, and I'll just confess to you to be real, this is a struggle for me because whatever I think, I think passionately and with a whole lot of fire. I have my own political opinions and beliefs that I'm not going to share up here because I don't want anyone equating God or the gospel with that. I'll share over lunch with people if they ask. So I, I, I am passionate about what I believe and what I think politically in every other way. I'm passionate about everything. If I go see a movie, I'll talk about it for five days to anyone around. You know, if I find a pair of boots I love, like these, I'll buy them over and over and over. Sharon tries to get me not to buy two or three pairs at once. Right? But I will tell you, and I don't know if any of you are with me, I feel myself being drawn away from, from a Christ-centered emotional state, mental state, and spiritual state the more I'm on social media or engaging news, especially through times like right now. So that would just be my challenge to you um, as we jump into this. We're going to be this morning in Daniel chapter 3 taking what I hope will be a, a bit of a fresh look at a story that many of you are familiar with in the life of the people of God. We're going to look at three encounters that three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had during the Babylonian exile. And I know for those of you that grew up in church, like you can remember the little flanograph probably from way back in the day. If you guys are like 30 or below, just Google flanograph. Um, so you've been familiar with this story for a long time. But I think there are so many angles to what God's doing here in the life of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that I want us um, to take a run at this morning, particularly as it relates to living as people of faith and not fear. 
There are all kinds of things that, that you and I uh, are afraid of. I was listening to a book this week uh, on Audible uh, about personal finances, and the author was saying that one of the things she's discovered and other kind of financial gurus have discovered is that no matter how much money we make or how much we have saved up, there tends to be some level of fear in us that it's not going to be enough. Have you ever experienced that? Yes, we have. We have all kinds of small fears, too. Uh, my wife, Sharon, she flew out to Texas Friday morning. So I've had the kids um, since then by myself. I have to give a shout-out to Julia Conley, who's helped, so, so she doesn't out me on social media or something. So she's been a great help. But other than that, uh, largely on my own. And here's the thing. Can I just say this? Moms work an inordinate amount. Um, I, I, I don't get, uh, for you moms, how you do all that you do. Uh, because when Sharon's gone, we, we enter what I often call a, a run-out-the-clock scenario, right? So I'm not concerned about nutrition. I'm not concerned about how many hours the kids watch TV. I'm just concerned about getting us through with everyone still alive and at home until Sharon returns, especially if it's multiple days. Right, And then the night before she returns, I always, like my stress shoots up and I think, we got to get this place clean before she comes home because I'm not going to have her think I'm incompetent and come in and say what I have heard before. I can't go anywhere because when I return, I have to do everything I normally do plus four days of what you didn't do. Wives, have any of you experienced that with your husbands? Yes. See, I love it. You engage wives, they'll answer. Men are scared when you ask husbands to uh, answer anything. So I don't do that in church. But um, our, our twin toddlers woke up this morning about 3.40, and it was playtime in their mind. Uh, and that will bring out all the parts of your brokenness and your sinfulness inside you uh, when kids decide to play at 3.40 in the morning. Now, here's the amazing thing. When my wife's home, I don't even hear them. I never even hear the monitor, but I have fear when she's not there that if I don't get to them in time and settle them back down and get them back to sleep, I will have missed my window. And some of you who can remember having little kids or some of you that have them now know when you miss the window, you're just up, right? You're downstairs uh, watching some kind of show, playing around. We have little fears. We have big fears, massive clinical fears called phobias. Maybe some of you suffer from a phobia. This week, just for fun, I researched some odd phobias. Let me share a few with you. Ombrophobia is fear of rain. Ombrophobia is fear of rain. I watched a woman walking out of Kroger the other day that I would swear suffers from this because she was running with great panic as it rained. And I want to say, sweetheart, you live in the wrong place if you're scared of rain. I know when we moved here in August, uh, there was a lot of rain the first eight or ten weeks. I had to ask the staff, does it rain here all the time? And they said, no, it comes in waves, and then it stops. For long periods of time, it comes back in waves. Numerophobia is fear of numbers. That's not like fear of seeing a number, but it's fear of doing math or having to work with numbers. Some of you understand yourself better now. Students, go tell your teachers that you really would like to do better with math, but you suffer from numerophobia. And it's not your fault. Thalassophobia, fear of the ocean or deep waters. Some of you may have this one. 
You don't do deep, deep water. A phobia is fear of teenagers or adolescents. Some of you parents have a phobia right now. Fear of teenagers or adolescents. I understand that now. I have a house full of them. And it's terrifying. Globophobia is fear of balloons. Like, I get fear of clowns. I don't know about fear of balloons, but some people have it. And a new one that has been rolled out over the last few years and won't shock anybody is nomophobia, which is fear of being without a smartphone. That's a real thing now, a clinically diagnosable thing, uh, where, where any period of time without access to a smartphone, uh, a smartphone causes anxiety and fear to the degree that it begins to affect the quality of life or decision-making of whoever suffers from it. It is fine. I mean, we have to laugh a little bit. Uh, it is a phobia of our own creation, but it is there. But I will tell you, friends, and you know this, we are not called to be people of fear, are we? God says in his word that he's not given us a spirit of fear. That doesn't come from God. Now, there's a healthy amount of fear that God gives us as a gift that says if I jump off the roof, I probably can't fly. That's an acknowledgment of gravity. And a good fear keeps you usually from doing that. And what I want to hear you, or what I want you to hear from God this morning is something that I've said before, but we need to hear again. And it is simply that God is in control in all ways, at all times, of all things. There's nothing that happens in God's world that is outside of his sovereign control. And he is the God, as we saw in our last series, who delivers. He is the God who delivers. Let's look at Daniel chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8. But I'll just remind you that the people of God have been taken from their cultural and geographical home, and a great portion of them had been exiled, had been taken out uh, as Babylon con conquered, uh, conquered the land of Canaan and Israel, and they had been um, exiled to Babylon, modern-day Iraq, to a culture that was unfamiliar to them. And I, you know, I've got to say, some of you look around, I look around a little bit at my age, and my own culture is becoming unfamiliar to me. My own country seems more and more to be a bizarre place, spinning awkwardly toward some kind of strange future that I think is unsettling to most of us in this room. But King Nebuchadnezzar, who was ruling Babylon at that time, he built a statue to himself nine stories tall. So this building is two stories tall. Nine stories tall, right, men? Because if we're going to build a statue to ourselves, let's build a good one. Nine stories. And he gathers his royal musicians and says, Hey, I want you to, to play a call basically to worship, and I'm going to have all of my people come, and they're going to bow down to the statue as an acknowledgment of submission to the gods of Babylon, my gods, and ultimately to me. But there's a problem with three Jewish men that God had blessed, and they'd been raised up to positions of influence and power within the royal court. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Let's look at verse 8. We'll read verses 8 through 12, starting out. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, the funny thing about this word denounce is it's a Hebrew idiom. It's a Hebrew idiom that literally means ate their pieces. 
ate their pieces. Strange saying. I don't know if any of you have ever heard a phrase that I heard some time growing up. I'm about to find whether it's just a, an older phrase or a country phrase or a southern phrase or was just my family or people around me. But they would say he made mincemeat of somebody, uh, usually talking about a fight. Um, and it's kind of this idea. These astrologers came up, and their desire was to absolutely have these Jewish men physically destroyed. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. When you're in the power of greatness, it's good to start out by brown nosing. And that's the way they do. They come in sucking up to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 10, your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither. Doesn't zither sound like a great instrument? I don't know if you know what a zither is. I did not know what a zither was. So I googled it. A zither is basically like the fat part of a guitar that sits on your lap. And you play the strings. Zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. Now, isn't there something ironic about being called to fall down and worship something that you watched being built by human hands? You build it and you worship it. What a strange thing. Verse 11, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, don't miss this. Well, I'll say that for just a minute. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Basically, what's going on here is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are having an encounter of accusation. They're having an encounter of accusation. And these astrologers, these Chaldeans, knew Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they knew these Chaldean astrologers. They served together in the royal court. And what I want you to hear this morning as we uh, begin this uh, series on fear is that God is not just in control of all things, but I want to bring it down and say God is, is in control when relationships go bad. You ever had a relationship go sideways on you? A family member, a friend, a co-worker, maybe a boss or an employee. Some of you have a relationship that's gone sideways right now. And it's occupying a lot of your mind and your heart. Ever had a relationship go sideways with someone at church? Can't imagine, right? It does happen. Not here, but in other churches, they've heard of things like that. These rival astrologers denounce these Hebrew men. Now, I want you to think about the motivation here. What you see clearly from the text are, are two motivations underneath their desire to slander Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The first is simply racial and ethnic distrust. Notice the way that they talk about them. Look back at verse 8, because they know their names. You find that out just a couple of verses down. But in verse 8, they come forward and they denounce the Jews. They denounce the Jews. They don't like them. They're ethnically different. They're racially different. They're culturally different. 
you and I often have a hard time understanding and accepting different kinds of people. But I'm telling you, we serve a God who is redemptively in pursuit of all kinds of people. Of all kinds of people. I, I grew up, kind of the church world I grew up in was very, very, very narrow. And I grew up uh, thinking that you couldn't be Christian and have tattoos. You couldn't be Christian and come to church in shorts and a t-shirt. You couldn't be Christian and drink alcohol. You couldn't be Christian and on and on it went. And what I found as I matured, just as a follower of Jesus, that all of that was nonsense. All of that was the tradition of man. It was pharisaical religion that had been wrapped up over God's truth. And behind it mostly was just our dislike of people that aren't like us. I think for most churches that have a hard time reaching people far from God, the real truth is they just don't like them. They don't believe that God actually likes them and loves them and is in pursuit of them. These Chaldeans don't like the Jews. They don't like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But there's another reason that they're going after them, that there's this fracture of relationship and they're trying to slander them. And it's professional jealousy. Professional jealousy. Look at verse 12. But there are some Jews. Again, he doesn't say some men. They say there's some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. There's clearly this connection between who they are and the, the power and success that they have had. Now let me just tell you this. If God ever grants you a measure of success in life, there will be people that do not like it. And one of the greatest ways to sift your actual friends is not by going through trials, it's by succeeding. By doing very, very well at what you do. You'll find then who your real friends are, who encourage you and are excited for you and are thrilled for you versus who tries to pull you down. Can I just say this? Here's the fear underneath this when we have an encounter of accusation. It's the fear that, that someone else is going to think something about us or someone else is going to say something about us that is outside of God's control for life and somehow harm us in a way that can't be undone. Do you realize how much energy and money we spend trying to shape the way that everyone sees us? It's an inordinate amount of energy and money and time. I'd encourage you to track through this week just being very aware of what you say and why you're saying it. And ask yourself how often you say things or qualify things trying to shape how someone perceives you. Most of the back of vehicles right now are a stickered attempt to inform people we don't know or care about on the roads of how awesome we are of what we once did or what we're a part of or what we're engaged in. And this fear leads us to get into debt. It leads us to harm other people with our words so that we feel better about ourselves. When someone says they've got your back and instead they stab you in the back, anybody ever experienced that? That's scars. That's tough. The question is, do you trust God? Can you still yourself and trust God with your reputation, with your image, with who you are? I've shared this story with you before, but it definitely bears repeating. Dallas Willard, one of the uh, most prolific writers on spiritual disciplines and Christian growth um, in the last 50 years, passed away just a few 
years ago. His books have been uh, tremendously influential uh, on me through the years, and Dallas would often speak on things uh, regarding spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines. And he had a, a couple of people that would, would go with him. He was a professor at the University of Southern California, um, and he would travel around and speak. Uh, remarkable man, uh, remarkable life, remarkable intellect. And often he would speak for a while or do a session, and right at the end of it, there would be a short open mic Q&A. Open mic times are terrifying, right? Because every village has a idiot. Thank you. I didn't have to say it. I'm just repeating what you said. Yes. Village idiots are drawn to open mics. And, and often it was, it was the case that someone would come up and they, they would fire back at, at Willard about this or about that or they would um, accuse him of maybe not saying uh, the whole truth or everything. And I'll just tell you, when you speak, especially about theology or Bible, you have to say everything all the time, or someone inevitably accuses you of intentionally leaving something out. Um, and one particular day, one young man who traveled with him often when he would speak, I asked him, right after one of these Q&As, where a guy really just kind of a verbally assaulted him just a little bit, and they went back, and he said, man, Dallas, why won't you ever respond? Because Dallas would just say, thank you. You know what? That may be right, or whatever. <laughs> We're going to break, and we'll be back out for our next session, and he'd go back. He said, why won't you ever engage? Why won't you defend yourself? Why won't you even intellectually engage them and just sort of wrap them in a knot? And he said, Dallas, who was much older, much wiser, uh, and much godlier than him in the back, said, young man, he said, I'm practicing the spiritual discipline of not having to have the last word. It's a very powerful thing. I think a lot of us could do well with more practice in that area. Let's go on, because they don't just have an encounter of accusation. There's an encounter of trial. Look at verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, I want you to understand the faithfulness with which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were holding. Because Nebuchadnezzar was not saying they couldn't worship their God, the Jewish God. He was just saying, you're also going to worship our gods. And I'll tell you, church, that's the culture we live in right now. It's okay, you can be Jesus' people. And as long as you give assent and say, this is okay too, as long as you accept this, as long as you concede here, that's fine. You can go to church. You can have whatever other values you want. So Nebuchadnezzar wasn't saying you can't worship your God. He's just saying you have to worship our gods as well. Verse 15. Now when you hear the sound, and he goes through the musicians again, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. In a sense, he's giving them a second chance. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. The blazing furnace for ancient Babylon was, was what the firing squad or nooses have been in revolutions historically. It was a way of dealing with your enemies in a public way that created fear among those watching and hopefully obedience. End of verse 15. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? This is the central question of chapter 3. When Nebuchadnezzar brings his entire force to bear, all the power that he can sum up 
as the king of the greatest military power in that day to bear against these three followers of God. What God is going to save them then? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Sounds like maybe, maybe they had the same idea that Dallas Willard had. We don't have to try to control what everyone believes or thinks about us. We don't have to have the last word all the time. Can I tell you, not having to have the last word is going to make your marriage better. Not having to have the last word will make you a better parent, make you a better child, will make you a better employee, make you a better employer, will make you a better friend. They just say we don't have to defend ourselves before you in this matter. In other words, we don't answer to you with regard to who we worship. Look at verse 17. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Do you hear the faith-fueled fearlessness with which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are able to live? And they're living this way in a land that's not theirs, in a culture that's not their own, in a place that's not their home, under the subjugation of a foreign power, right in the presence of the one who seemingly has the keys to life and death for them in his hand. They say, hey, throw us in a furnace if that's what you want. Because our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. But, but, your majesty, King Neb, if he doesn't, if he doesn't, that's fine. We're still not going to bow down and worship. Now, you and I are probably not going to be asked to bow down and worship a statue someone made. Can we agree that's probably not likely for most of us? If someone asks you to do that, you probably ought to call some form of social services and get them help. Because if they just built something and is asking you to worship it, they are somewhat deranged or derailed cognitively. So you've got to get them help or maybe at least call the police and get them off the streets. right? Get them evaluated. That's likely not ever going to happen to us. But I don't want us to be confused that every single day in our culture, individuals and organizations with agendas are telling us as followers of Jesus that we need to bow down and we need to accept this cultural appropriation, this value, this understanding of human sexuality, this way of thinking about money, this idea about success or climbing the ladder. And we've even entered into, over the last five, six, seven, eight years, this odd space in our public square where many will come after you if you won't bow down to their gods that they believe and they think reign supreme, where they will go after you. They'll go after your character. They'll go after your job. Sometimes they'll go after your family. If you don't say what they want you to say, or maybe you don't phrase it like they want you to phrase it. Or you don't use the word they want. 
You don't say some personal behavior or some personal belief is okay. Tell me you haven't experienced this. Tell me you haven't noticed the dial being turned up in our nation around this kind of behavior. Bow down and worship what I believe is of extreme and supreme importance. Usually circles around whatever the newest trend is, the newest thing, the newest ist that's out there. This is the pressure you and I live with. It's nothing like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced. Our lives aren't on the line here. Increasingly so, it may be true that some livelihoods of some followers of Jesus are going to be on the line if they truly live for Christ in their profession. And in one way, that could be a little unnerving to us. In another way, I say, let it, let it come. The church shines the broadest and burns the hottest in cultures that have turned against her. The church always has. It's amazing here to me that these three Jewish men have no need to answer. No need to give a reply or a comeback. Can I just tell you, having verbal comebacks, like it's hard for me not to do that. I'm not good at very much, but I'm good with words. And there's almost always a snarky reply in my mind. If I can keep it in my mind, I'm doing well most of the time. And I hope that as God continues to sanctify me and work on me and shape me, sometimes they won't even be in my mind. Another thing that Dallas Willard said is he said, one of the surest signs of spiritual maturity are the thoughts you no longer have. You know, the thoughts that, uh, that a husband has to say, hey, honey, come here, look, I put my own clothes in the dirty clothes. You're welcome. Right? Come, look, baby, I did the dishes, all four of them. You'll be amazed that maybe we just serve at home without any need to call attention to ourselves. They have no comeback. But they're not going to bow down and worship this God. And I want to challenge you, church, to be very thoughtful about the myriad of tiny idols that you and I are being called to bow down to in our culture and accept and give allegiance to other than Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Paul Tillich was a mid-20th century German-American theologian. And he said this, A person's God a person's God is that thing or person that one is most concerned about, thinks the most about, or affects one's life the most. What Tillich is saying is, if you want to root out what your tiny gods are, they're the things that, that hold supreme concern in your mind. I would just ask you this morning, how are you doing with this? What is it right now that, that holds supreme concern in your mind? That which your thoughts and your hearts are consumed with. That pulls the veil back on what our functional God is. One of the things as I talk with pastors uh, across the country, uh, and there's been a lot of this discussion through the pandemic because it's been unsettling. And I don't know about you, um, it's been unsettling for me as a follower of Jesus to see the behavior um, and the words uh, of some of my fellow professing followers of Jesus. And I will tell you, it is a, a modernly Western and peculiar idea that life is supposed to be smooth and good. And we're shocked when it's not. That's not the reality of life in a creation deeply marred and affected 
by the fallenness of human beings and our sin. It's just not. But, but part of the struggle is, uh, over this last year, we had like a, uh, an unholy trinity of social unrest of a political season and a pandemic thrown together. And it was very revealing uh, in the life of the church kind of as a whole in our country. And what, what we did so many times, instead of being a shining witness before our neighbors, is split and fight over like whether or not we're going to wear masks. Can I just tell you that's juvenile? And ungodly it's ridiculous and that's just that's just, like I don't want to go on I mean we could go on I don't even want to get into the social unrest and politics this morning we'd be here all day and wind up having to call the police but instead of being the unified people of God who have been ambassadors of grace and of the hope of Christ and of the humility and submissiveness of Christ in a culture going through an extremely difficult season we turn not only on people, but on one another. It's been shocking to see. And I, I know I saw friends that uh, as the, the political season ramped up, it became very clear that their functional savior was the secular progressive agenda or, or Trump and his agenda or, or throw in whatever kind of political thing that, that all of the thinking and all of their social media posts and all of their fire and all of their heart and all of their energy was going in that one direction. And I will just tell you, this leads us to living in fear. Fear of what happens if this person is elected or that person. What happens if this legislation is passed or that legislation is passed. It, it leads us to living as functional atheists who aren't rooted in the security and the hope and the faithfulness that we have in God. Tripper Longman, who is an Old Testament scholar, who specializes really in Psalms and Proverbs, wisdom literature, says, when the mass are ripped away behind every idol is the self. That's true. That's absolutely true. When I, when I, when I am able to, to see God pull the mask away in my own life from every little tiny idol that I end up being drawn to and worship or holding on to, behind it is me. A desire for my greatness or my comfort or my success. The belief that this little tiny idol is going to bring me more pleasure than God himself will. Frederick Nietzsche, that greatest of atheists, said this in, in a moment of just honesty. He said, but let me reveal my heart to you entirely, my friends. If there were gods, how could I endure not to be a god? Hence, there are no gods. Really? Like, is that the extent of your logic for life? If there are gods, how could I stand not to be a god? Therefore, there must not be gods. Terrifyingly simple in logic and reason. But behind Nietzsche's honesty is a lot of sinful human behavior, even among us who claim to be followers of Jesus, that we want to be our own gods but i think what shadrach meshach and abednego are finding out in these verses is that god's not just in control when relationships go bad you've had relationships go bad in here we're all old enough to have had that happen and you're going to have relationships go bad again at some point in your future but god is in control when there's pressure and even extreme pressure to compromise what you believe you don't have to be mean those outside the church have had enough experience with mean Christians. 
We can just say with love and with respect for where that other person is that as followers of Jesus, we seek to bring glory to him and to submit to what he teaches us. And this is what we believe about whatever the issue is. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have no doubt that God can deliver them, but they humbly accept the fact that God may not deliver them. And the stakes were high. They have a final encounter, though. Look at verse 19. It's an encounter of fire or in the fire, an encounter in the furnace. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. These ancient furnaces, these large furnaces, could get up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's significantly hot. All right, you with me? Seven times hotter. And commanded, verse 20, some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. Don't miss 21. Uh, 21 is important. Part of what 20, uh, verse 21 is doing is acknowledging that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had royal status in the courts. They're not just wearing robes and trousers. They're wearing royal garments on top of that. Uh, think of judges. Well, I, you would hope a judge is wearing clothes underneath his robe, right? Or her robe. Uh, if they're not, you need to get them help if you can. But hopefully they're wearing clothes and they put their robe on top of it to signify the significance of their position. And also this amount of fabric makes good kindling. So they're thrown into the furnace. Verse 22, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Those who were serving Nebuchadnezzar with unthinking loyalty actually died in their pursuit to do what he says. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. What else would you say? Like, you just saw this dude have three men thrown into a furnace, heated up seven times hotter than usual. You're going to agree with whatever he says. Verse 25, he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace. Now, don't miss this. Let me pause there because I love this. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not just alive. They're trotting around in the furnace. I love it. They're like, hey, while we're down here, Neb, we're going to get some exercise. Going to walk around, visit some. They are unharmed. Church, no harm comes from you outside of God's sovereign control. God can do whatever God wants to do. They're in there. Man has brought on all the violence and all the power that can be brought against these servants of God. And they're untouched. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace, verse 26, and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants 
of the Most High God. Come out, come here. Sometimes, sometimes, your willingness to lovingly continue to live unbowed to the gods of our culture result in some looking on you and looking on us as God's gathered people and acknowledging the Most High God and being led into a relationship with Him by His mercy. Now, let me ask you this because I think there's a tension here. God's in control when relationships go wrong. He's in control when the pressure um, to submit and to, um, to lay aside our values are there. He's in control when you're in the fire. Some of you are in the fire this morning. You're in the furnace of fi- financial difficulty. You're in the furnace of a relationship having gone very, very bad. You're in the furnace of maybe, maybe mental or physical um, dishealth. Can I just say how much I hate that we separate just the physical health of our body from, from mental health? The brain is an organ, right? There are all kinds of furnaces that you may be in. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find out that what they believed and were holding on to his faith is true. God is in control even in the furnace. And whether in deliverance or death, they would not worship the gods of their culture. Whether in deliverance or death, they would remain faithful to God. Sometimes God's going to deliver you from something. But also, there are times when God is going to deliver you through something. Anybody remember a few years ago when 21 Coptic Christians, uh, men from Egypt, were executed very publicly by ISIS? They were beheaded. God delivered those faithful followers of Jesus that day, but he delivered them through their trial, not from it. But they knew that he could do as he pleased. What's amazing here is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego encounter the divine presence of God in the middle of the fire. How many of you have lived long enough to know that God most often draws near when we most need him? That when the pain is the highest, when fear is the highest, when uncertainty is deepest, God is nearest to us. We sense his presence. And this fire that was intended to be an instrument of death for the Babylonian king turns out to be a source of life for the three Hebrew men. And if you remember throughout the Old Testament, fire is often a symbol of whose presence? God's presence. And he's with them. God is showing Nebuchadnezzar who's really in charge. God's showing the rulers of Babylon that they can make whatever decisions they want to and he reigns supreme as God. He's a deliverer. Instead of rescuing them up out of the fire immediately, God descends into the fire to be with them. And six centuries later, Jesus Christ would come to earth. He would descend into the furnace of humanity and dwell with us in the chaos and the brokenness of the human condition. The carnage of first century Palestine under Roman rule. And he would experience the exhaustion and betrayal and death that comes with the human condition. Not to save us from death, but to deliver us through his death. God's victory, infinite victory on the cross. Let me tell you this. If you're going to live faith-fueled lives instead of fear-fueled lives... 
you're going to have to hold on to and put some verses in your mind that deal with the character of God and the power of God. You and I often feel like we can just memorize some verses about the promises of God and be good to go. But I just want to give you a few. One comes from Daniel chapter 4 here. Uh, If you flip over one chapter, verses 34 and 35, Daniel goes on, um, the author of the book, and is used in a powerful way to open Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. Look at verses 34 and 35 as Nebuchadnezzar's talking. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now that's not a verse we usually put on t-shirts, but that's good theology. This is theology that reminds us that we serve an unstoppable God. He is and his church is an unstoppable force. Psalm 115 verse 3 says this, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him that could equally be translated our God is in heaven he does whatever he wants if you move back over a few chapters in the book of Psalms to Psalm 134 you see in Psalm 134 verse 6 or 135 I'm sorry 135 verse 6 the Lord does whatever pleases him in heavens and on earth in the seas and all their depths Turn over a couple more books to Isaiah 46. I know you probably can't keep up with this, so jot them down or just email me and say, hey, what were those verses? Um, If you want them. But Isaiah verse 46, let's go verse 10, 46.10. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God will not be thwarted by human efforts or human sin. So this is very much like Psalm 46.10, which we know the first part of, but we don't tend to know the second part of. Verse 46.10 is often quoted this way, Be still and know that I am God. That familiar with you? That's not all verse 46.10 says, uh, Psalm 46.10. It also says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. It's this sovereign promise of God that his purposes, his plans, and his glory will come to pass. Last one I'll just give you this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. The Son, that is Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. You You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God thinks about broken people? Look at how Jesus related to broken people. You want, to go, you want to know who God is and how he relates to you and what he thinks of you and how he looks on you? Look at Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together these are verses about the sovereign nature of God's character 
and his power. And they would be terrifying if there weren't verses like Mark 10, 18 that tells us that God is good. That God is good. If there weren't verses like 1 John 1, 5 that says, In God there is light and in him there is no darkness. God is light and in him there is no darkness. How much darkness? None. Or 1 John 4, 8 that says, God is love. You hold on to those verses, God is good, God is light, God is love, and you put them together with the fact that the sovereign God will not be held back, not be restrained, his kingdom purposes on earth will come to pass, you will be surprised at the increase of faith and decrease of fear that comes in your life as you put God's word in your mind and you dwell on it in a way that brings him glory. John Macduff said, trust God where you cannot trace him. Isn't that a great statement? Trust God where you cannot trace Him. Do not try to penetrate the cloud He brings over you. Rather, look to bow, look to the bow that is on it. Often we don't think about a rainbow as the picture of a bow which was an instrument of war. And instead of the bow being turned down toward us with God's vengeance being shot toward us, it's turned upside down with the repercussions of our sin being moved up toward God. The mystery is God's. The promise is yours. Finally, C.H. Spurgeon, that great 19th century British preacher, said this, When you have no friends, see all your friends in God. When you have many friends, see God in all your friends. When you have nothing but God, see all in God. When you have everything, see God in everything. Under all conditions, stay your heart only on the Lord. What Spurgeon said there is a mouthful. And it's one of the open secrets to what it means to live with a life that's driven by faith instead of fear. is to stay our hearts and steady our hearts only on the Lord. Let's stand and pray.